Hey, listeners, when Peter and I started the X Chateau podcast, the idea was to try and build a community around the business of wine. Now, we've been able to engage with a number of you offline, but we wanted to try to do something a little bit more proactive as we're quickly approaching our 50th episode and one year anniversary. So we're going to be recording a live podcast on Clubhouse. We'll be doing this on May 4th at noon Pacific Standard Time. If you're interested in joining us, we'd love to have you join the conversation and come on stage and leave a comment or ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. Hope you can join us. Cheers. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Mia Vanderwater, who is a master sommelier and a board member of the United Sommeliers Foundation and on the board of the Court of Master Sommeliers. Mia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you guys today. Yeah, so this episode, Peter and I thought it'd be interesting if we could talk about the future of restaurants and wine programs in general, especially given the transition that we've had in the year of 2020. But I was wondering, before we get into that, if we could talk a little bit about your background and your career in wine and how you got into wine. Absolutely. So I am coming up on my 20-year anniversary of working in restaurants. I started in high school as like a busser and a food runner and a hostess and all of that stuff. And then... It was in college, I was working in a restaurant in Boston on Newberry Street that did like very small amount, but still like if you came in an hour early on Mondays, you could sit down with like one of the reps that supplied the restaurant and they would like teach you about wine. So I started to learn and I didn't know anything about anything, but figured out how to talk to people about wine, which I think is a totally separate skill set and very valuable. So when I moved to New York, I started working at Union Square Cafe because I read Setting the Table before I left Boston and knew instantly that I really wanted to work for that kind of company with that level of culture and accountability. And so I worked for Danny for almost nine years. And in the middle of that, I was opening a restaurant called North End Grill in 2012 that we had downtown in Battery Park City. And I basically got given this SOM job because I knew how to talk about wine to people and they hadn't hired any floor SOMs. And so they just promoted me and this other girl. And I realized that it was the greatest job in the world. And I got really obsessed with studying and... When I left North End Grill, I had been the beverage director for, I guess, three years at that point in that restaurant. And then I went to 11 Madison Park to be on the sommelier team there because I really wanted to work with like a really like big wine list and also get the experience in like ultra fine dining that you can only get in a couple of places. So I was at EMP for three years until covid And then I had an interesting summer where I worked grocery retail at Whole Foods in the wine store there and did some other retail on the side, which was a totally different side of selling wine to people. And it was very eye-opening. And then in August, I joined the team at Coat Korean Steakhouse in New York. And so I work with Victoria James in overseeing the beverage programs at whichever location each of us happens to be at. So I was running New York until about a week ago. And now Victoria's back in New York and I'm in Miami 
overseeing this restaurant because we just opened a month ago. So there's plenty of coaching and guidance that can happen. So you became a master sommelier in 2018? I did. Yeah. You know, obviously there's been a lot of controversy around the court in the last two years. I'm curious on how that has impacted you and affected your thoughts on the court and the titles and things like that. Sure. So 2018, I'm in the class that had to retake tasting. So I passed in September. I wanted to take the first available retest because it's a weird limbo place to live in. So I passed in September of 2018. I wanted to take the first available retest because it's a weird limbo space to live in and I didn't like it at all. And so I took the December retest and passed that round as well. So I was not in limbo for very long and a lot of my colleagues still remain in that like in-between space. And for people who don't know or who weren't familiar with it, there was a cheating scandal that happened then where one of the master sommeliers leaked what the wines were going to be to somebody and they may have got around and they decided to cancel everybody who passed exam and make them retake it. Is that how you describe it? Yes. So people commonly refer to it as a cheating scandal, which is not really correct because it implies that there was like active bad behavior on the part of candidates. But to my understanding, what happened was an examiner who also happened to be a board member released information via email about what two of the wines were going to be to an unspecified number of people. But my understanding is that it was not solicited by anyone. It was like this information that was just given and not asked for. And because if anyone has been to a master selling exam, practical and tasting is usually about 50 people. We all know each other really well. It's a very, very small group of people that get to that level of exams because it requires your entire life. And it's not something that everyone can or should definitively want to do because you sacrifice basically everything else, including all of your personal life. And most people stay in the same hotel. I wasn't in the hotel that year. We got an Airbnb because we wanted to be away from all of the anxiety. But it's really impossible to definitively say if any information got reshared. And rather than trying to determine that through some sort of investigation, the board at the time decided it was better to just invalidate all results. So it's everyone. It wasn't just the people who passed. Everyone resat, including people who didn't pass the September exam. I think the distinction of if it wasn't candidate driven is a really important one because again, the way people usually in a cheating thing, it's the students are cheating as opposed to the proctors giving out the answers. It's a very different uh, dynamic. And I don't know that there's a word for it, the flip side of it. (laughs) I don't know. It's a difficult and complicated situation. And there are a lot of people in the court, meaning other master sommeliers who would really like to see that whole situation revisited. And so it's one of the things that is on the table for the current board that I'm on, but it's not currently our first priority. And we have some other things that we think are more important to do first, but it's definitely something that a lot of people would like to see revisited. 
So I am curious, outside of that cheating scandal, how the other kind of response to the social inequity, Black Lives Matter movements in the U.S. that have started a while ago, but it really hit the industry in 2020, as well as some of the sex scandals that were talked about in some of the articles. I think it was what, New York Times? It was the article, it was the main article. So I'm curious on how that's impacted you being a woman with that title. How have you felt about it since learning about these things? So... Obviously, it is a deeply frustrating and heartbreaking situation and something that should never have been tolerated. Although I know that it's really easy in a lot of aspects of our lives in hindsight to look back and say this never should have happened. I was never personally affected by any sort of harassment in that direction. I had a really wonderfully supportive journey through my examinations and my like deepest sorrow and regret about what clearly happened to a number of people is that it has created a situation in which the kind of really brilliant, bright women who should have gone through the programs and been successful and been supported are now looking at the process of becoming a master sommelier is something that they don't want to do or don't feel safe doing. For me, the pursuit of the pin is personal. I think a lot of people think about it as like a professional accreditation, and obviously it is, but the point is not to get the pin. The point is the process of mastering the subject and becoming the level of professional that has the ability to pass the exam, if that makes sense. Like I would be a different person and frankly, a less competent wine director if I hadn't gone through the program because it forces you to find ways to pay attention to and care about aspects of the wine world that you don't initially care about, which is really important because someone cares about those regions. And if at the end of the day, our job is to build programs that speak to the restaurant's point of view, but also have something for every guest that walks in the room from the guest who's like really geeky about ground crew Burgundy from like the best producers, which is obviously everyone's favorite person to someone who comes in and says like, Hey, Camus is my favorite wine in the whole world. Like it's our job to make sure that we can take care of that person. And if you feel like you have the luxury to say like, I don't care about the wines of South America or I can't be bothered to learn about Portugal or whatever that is for you. It makes you a lesser sommelier and a lesser beverage director. And so the imperative to learn this stuff and figure out how to care and think about it from a guest perspective and from the perspective of someone in the industry in that part of the world is so valuable. And it breaks my heart that there are people who look at it now and say, I don't know if this is for me. Because the point is bigger than I think what it has been for some people. And prior to that, the program had really expanded and was probably at all-time highs on the backs of three Psalm movies. Has enrollment declined after all these events? It is literally impossible to say because we suspended all in-person programming for COVID. So I have no idea. We'll know at the end of like 2022. But until then, we won't have any idea what the impact has been. And honestly, hopefully by the end of 2022, 
will have made a lot of really positive changes and hopefully people will feel better about being in the program. So a number of people have left the program for either due to the court's response to social inequity or to these issues with sexual harassment. I'm curious on you, though, you stayed and you're now on the board of the court. That takes a lot of conviction to basically stay and try to reshape and change the thing that has been so personal to you. And I'm curious on how you see that evolving and what are the changes that you're trying to push forward in the court? So I think as a general rule, and I'm super proud to be on the board, I am incredibly proud of and inspired by the other people who are now on the board with me. And we're pretty aligned on this central question. We really feel like the organization started as sort of this fraternal brotherhood kind of thing. And it stayed that way for a long time. It was this group of unusually like geeky, weird wine people. Like we're all very strange. Um, We like to refer to ourselves as the Island of Misfit Toys because it takes a special kind of personality to like go through the whole thing. And so we're a bunch of really odd ducks. And, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, like there was very little professional wine culture in America or like a serious wine market. Like people didn't really drink wine, especially not quality wine up until probably starting in like the eighties into the nineties. And even then it was a pretty small group of people. And so the CMS evolved the way that it evolved, but today like we need to refocus on who we want to be now in the market that exists now And so we want to reorient the focus off of the membership and onto the candidates. Like what we should be doing is everything we can to make sure that we are creating better, more inclusive, safer, and more engaging situations for people who are interested in starting to learn about wine and then expanding their skills and then If you're someone who values mastery of wine over (laughs) everything else in your life, all the way up through becoming a master sommelier yourself. But the point should be the candidates and what we do to teach them and not each other and how proud we all are of ourselves for doing this admittedly insane thing. If the changes that you want to enact get put in place, do you think that a lot of those candidates that you are sad that decided that it may not be the right place that they will come back. Is that the goal? That's 100% the goal. It's my great hope. I don't know what I think will happen because I have learned that you can't make decisions for anyone else and you definitely can't make them want to engage in something if they don't want to. But the goal is for people to look at the quartermaster sommeliers and say, I like the direction that this is going. I feel good about the changes that are being made. I would like to engage with this organization because if we don't expand our membership and get more diverse and interesting points of view, then we'll never really be able to like actively change. But in the past 10 to 20 years, the membership of the court, meaning other master sommeliers, has become substantially more diverse than it was before then. And there's no reason that we can't continue to be more and more diverse and more attentive to creating more opportunities for inclusion in all levels of our programming. 
And I think building on that inclusion and focusing on the candidates would help build the profession of being a sommelier, right? Or a beverage director. And a lot of people still, people who aren't in the restaurant industry or in the wine industry don't really understand what that means and what it is. How would you describe what it means to be a sommelier or a beverage director for a restaurant or a fine dining restaurant? Sure. I mean, for me, the key quality to be an excellent sommelier is leadership and hospitality. I guess that's two key qualities. Like, as a sommelier, you should be a leader on the floor in service. I didn't think this before, and I think definitely moving forward as we get out of COVID and into the world after, there's no space for anyone who thinks that they're just going to come in, put wine away, waltz around the floor, sell some fancy bottles of wine, like yuck it up with like the wine PXs and then go home. Like that's not what you should be doing. And that's not what works anymore anyway. Like for me, when I'm hiring people, I want to hire people who care deeply about being the best at literally every aspect of service in the restaurant. Like, It is important to me that I can do everyone's job in the restaurant as well or better than they can. So I need to be able to bust tables as well as anyone else in the restaurant or run food or run drinks or talk about cocktails or like man the barista station, like everything. Like it's super important that we care about all of these aspects of service because generally speaking, Once you become a sommelier, it's usually because you've worked your way up through all of the other positions. So you should be the most skilled person on the floor. And it's also really important that you think of your job as building relationships with guests and creating magical experiences from the very beginning to the very end. There's no part of the guest experience that should be like outside of your purview. And from that end... Like, obviously, you can't just, like, pop in and sell a bottle of Grand Cru Burgundy and then walk away when it's poured out. Like, that's not the job. And thinking about yourself as being, like, a key part of the team and someone who really, like, builds regulars and builds overall guest experience is what's actually important. And how does that change as people move, I guess, up to beverage director? I mean, the biggest change, I guess every restaurant calls the person who handles the program management a different thing. But the biggest difference is that in addition to all of those other things, which is also still important that you do, you're also now responsible for the financial health of the program, which is also the financial health of the restaurant, right? Because beverage is the area that you have the most opportunity to create more profitability for the restaurant, particularly wine. It is much harder to get people to be willing to spend lots of money on cocktails or beer, but the ceiling for wine is much higher. And so our job is to create programs that are dynamic and exciting and engaging, but also that feel like they provide really great value to the guest, but also are financially responsible for the restaurant. People often say that the beverage program can be 50% or more of the profitability of restaurants. What is that in your experience? I mean, yes, I think it depends on the restaurant. Obviously, it depends on the concept. The menu price is 
a factor when you're looking at the like percentage of sales in the restaurant. Like when I was at 11 Madison Park, it was a rare service when food was not more than 50% of sales. But if everyone's walking in and spending $335 a person, that means everyone has to spend over $335 a person on beverage. And that's a hard service to execute. You got to sell a lot of DRC all at once, all at the same time. (laughs) Normally, you only have one or two of those tables in a given service. But I think like guests don't think about this. And honestly, they shouldn't in the same way that I don't necessarily want to think about like how all of the aspects of production go into like the price of a theater ticket. Like I get that it's other things than just paying the actors and the musicians, but like, I don't want to have to care about like exactly how it works, but food is expensive because it requires a lot of labor. And honestly, cocktails are expensive because the more involved the bar program, the more labor is involved in producing it. And therefore, the higher the prime cost is on something like liquor. Beer is basically always cheap, but people are only willing to pay so much money for beer. I remember when cocktail bars were exploding in San Francisco and we could actually go to bars. I would always get super annoyed because it would take like 45 minutes just to like order the drink. And then another like 45 minutes to get a drink because it took like 15 minutes to make each drink. Right. I was like, there needs to be an express line for beer and wine, you know, and probably improve the profitability of this bar. Like, Three times, right? That's why they made barrel-aged cocktails, Peter. It was just just on top. (laughs) It's true. That is why batching happens. In your experience, do you see the beverage program as a percent of profitability being different for fine dining versus other types of restaurants? I think it's if you have a more casual concept with a really good wine program, it is easier to make up a larger percentage of sales in beverage. Like there's a restaurant in New York called Marta. That's a USHD restaurant that is, it's a pizza giant. And when they were opening it, they looked at the budget and they were like, look, people can only eat so much pizza. It can only cost so much money. So we need to build a wine program that feels like an insane value so that every single table is like, ah, I will have a bottle of wine. It doesn't matter if it's $40, but If everyone drinks a $40 bottle of wine that comes into that restaurant, that restaurant is substantially more profitable than if they came in and had like a beer or a glass of wine. And Marta had one of the highest percentage of sales and beverage in the company because the food price was so low, as opposed to somewhere like the modern where you can sell a lot more expensive wine, but the food is still going to occupy like a significant percentage of sales and food at that level is very expensive to produce. And why do you think people are willing to pay a higher markup for drinks or certain types of drinks than, say, food? Because I think the average person doesn't understand what various beverages cost for the most part. And it's why a good wine director will create you a program with a bunch of stuff that's really accessible and approachable to people, but isn't exactly what they buy in the grocery store. It's hard to put something like Kendall Jackson on a wine list and mark it up four times because people will sit there and be like, I pay $15 for this at the store. Why am I paying $15 for a glass of it? This is unreasonable. So that's part of our job is creating these lists that can't really be comparison shopped. And then there's part of it that's just like, 
the market dictates what something is worth, if that makes sense. Like, and every city's different, right? And every market's different. But like in New York, eight to ten dollars for draft beer is totally reasonable basically everywhere. Draft beer is really cheap. No like consumer really knows what it actually costs necessarily. But that's just the going rate for beer. So people are willing to pay it. With food, I think it's different. And you also get this additional layer of like, if it's something that is clearly like different, difficult, like groundbreaking, that sort of thing, then people are willing to pay for it. And there are items like steaks and dry aged beef and things like that, that people are also willing to pay for because they understand when they buy it in the store, it's also really expensive. But if you're not doing that, you run into this, I could make this at home, so why am I paying this for it in the restaurant? And Americans have really specific ideas about what they think food should cost, which are slightly unreasonable. You know, David Chang wrote a whole article about it several years ago in Lucky Peach about how the noodle bowls at Noodle Bar at the time like should cost $18, but no one's willing to pay $18 for a bowl of ramen, even if that's like what it should actually cost, if you consider like how you have to like pay people and ideally you're not paying them some sort of absurd minimum wage that no one can live on. And everyone wants like organic produce and like responsibly raised proteins. I think most guests have an opinion about what food should cost that is divorced from the actual cost of the thing. Oh, it's funny. I was actually talking with uh, somebody in Toronto and it literally is the thing, the wines that are available in the restaurant are available at the LCBO. And they're like, the, we run in this problem all the time. It's like, this literally costs this much money there. And so they found that they really had to change their markup structure in order just to even move wine because people were like, yeah, I'll just wait and drink this when I get home kind of thing. Obviously, you're missing the whole pairing experience and things like that. But I can imagine that states like Pennsylvania, where we have, obviously, it's like 50 different liquor boards across the country, that maybe they have similar challenges in terms of, I can imagine restaurants in Philadelphia being like, well, because we have a state store, I'm not sure how it works exactly in Philadelphia. But I just, I thought that was a really interesting thing that if your wines are literally available somewhere else, that makes it your job so much harder as a song. It does. And actually, in Pennsylvania, it's insane because you, the restaurant, have to buy your wine from the state store at the exact same price that your customer is going to buy it. So Pennsylvania is Canada, basically. Pennsylvania <laughs> so is Canada ridiculous. in that way. And it's why so many restaurants in Philadelphia are BYO. I think it's also really difficult to get a liquor license for other reasons, but it's really hard to have wine programs in Philadelphia. So for the restaurants you've worked in, what parts of the wine list are most profitable in dollars versus percentage of margin? Is it the buy the glass program, the lower price bottles, or is it the higher priced wines? Where's the profitability at? So I am like a super firm believer that dollars always trump like percentage cost. A lot of operators, especially if they're not beverage people, will look at it and they'll be like, lower cost of goods is better, always. But I don't think that's actually true. And so... If you run a higher cost of goods, but that like more favorable pricing enables you to substantially bring in more revenue than you would have otherwise, because people will change what they order and people will like opt out of wine and into cocktails or whatever, or buy the glass. If you can encourage people to buy more expensive wine because it looks like a screaming great deal, you're going to bring more actual money in even at a higher cost of goods than you would have if you were selling that wine for a lower cost of goods and therefore higher margin if it just sits there and it doesn't ever sell, right? 
So for me, every restaurant needs like a COGS engine because you are accountable, obviously, to your budget. And for most restaurants, that COGS engine is usually the buy the glass program. People usually run a much lower cost of goods on buy the glass than they do buy the bottle in the hope that they can encourage people to drink wines by the bottle because more dollars up front is also better than like glass after glass after glass after glass because you're not guaranteed all of those glass sales necessarily. But, you know, it really depends. There are other restaurants where if you do like 11 Madison Park does a lot more money in pairings and revenue than buy the glass. That restaurant doesn't sell a lot of buy the glass, honestly. It sells an enormous quantity of pairings. And so it makes more sense to offer like great values, especially on like higher end by the glass there, which is like glasses of wine that are like $35, $40, and use the pairings and deeper deals on those wines that you know you're going through a lot of in order to help bring down the cost. So then you can offer, not that 11 Madison Park's DRC is like super cheap, but enables you to look at it and say, huh, if I wanted to, perhaps I could knock like a couple thousand dollars off of this bottle of Romanet Conti and perhaps we would sell it faster. There's a lot of factors to judge on, but in general, my preferred like business model is to like find the area where you can save money by buying in volume, which therefore gives you still like a good value on the wines and also lowers your cost and like spend that COGS saving on the higher end bottles. So you have a fixed budget for your wine program and then you're basically reallocating that way to try to get the more expensive bottles that you can price at a lower margin, but hopefully sell quicker and get that working capital back to continue to reinvest in the program. Yeah, exactly. You do a sliding scale so that the more money you spend, the better your deal is. So in terms of how restaurants and wine programs have changed and evolved over time, prior to the craziness of 2020, what were some of the trends that you were seeing with restaurants, especially with regard to wine lists? So it felt, and obviously my experience is very New York oriented, and I recognize that New York is not everywhere. And so I'm sure there are other markets that saw different things, but we were really in this like hotshot. People with money had a lot of money to spend. I feel like by the glass prices have gone up substantially in the last 10 years and people's tolerance for by the glass pricing and like what the floor should be in your program has gone up a lot. You see that also in list pricing as well. There were a ton of like new fancy restaurants in New York, but like a la carte. So not like the like three star Michelin aspirational Love Madison Park, La Bernadette per se echelon of restaurants, but the kind of restaurant where like it's a la carte, the food's really good. But like if you go in with two people, like the odds of you dropping like four to $500 on a dinner that you had not expected to be that expensive were like very substantial. Like there was a lot of that opening up and getting like a lot of like press and hype in the city. And now to quote, I'm taking this from Anthony Bourdain, one of the essays, but I don't know that there will be the same kind of tolerance for that now. Like 
It's this idea of like, to use a fashion analogy, there will always be room for Hermes. There will always be room for like the absolute very best, the restaurants that are doing everything at the absolute highest level. But I don't know that there'll be the same kind of room for restaurants that are like super expensive, but not mind blowing. You know, you're like second and third tier restaurants that are still expensive, but don't provide the same level of excellence. Like, I think a lot of that is going to go away for now. So the ceiling's still just as high, just the floor is going to drop down a little bit. Yeah, I just think there will be less patience, maybe. And maybe this is less thinking and more hoping because I hate going into restaurants and then at the end being like, I have spent so much money and this was so not actually worth the money. I think that people are going to be more discriminating about what they actually spend their money on in terms of experiences. And what do you think about the changes pre-2020 around wine lists in particular or beverage programs, I guess? Everyone needed to have like a fancy craft cocktail program, preferably with like original cocktails and like the finest of ingredients. So that was definitely a trend. I think that that will stay, honestly. I think there were more restaurants that were working with larger lists, at least in New York. There were more programs that were employing floor sommeliers. That was like a gradual build up from 2008. More and more people were reinvesting in that area of the restaurant, which I think is great. That's the biggest thing. And then obviously like natural wine is so popular with everyone. (laughs) I sense some disdain in that tone. (laughs) I think that there are some natural wines that are really excellent. And then there are some natural wines that are very not excellent and are, in fact, just really messed up. And I dislike the impulse that I think a lot of less experienced wine buyers have to not recognize flaws and instead associate it with terroir instead, because flaws are not terroir. I do dramatically prefer to only sell wine that is not fatally flawed. I like a little Brett Britannomyces reduction as much as the next girl, but I want the wine to taste like wine and not cider. <laughs> or kombucha. So COVID hit 2020, changed everything in the restaurant world, okay? And there's never been such a substantial shutdown. I mean, imagine New York City basically grinding to a halt. It's insane. CNN reported that 17% or 110,000 restaurant closures in 2020 in the US. What impact has the pandemic and all these restaurant closures had on this industry? Like, especially as a sommelier. Outside and beyond the human factor, right? The existential terror of not knowing if the industry that you have devoted your life to is going to exist in a timely fashion, which is obviously really hard for so many people. I think the biggest thing that we saw, at least in New York, was there were restaurants that were able to pivot effectively and there were restaurants that were not. And some of that was just by nature of the type of restaurant. You can't pivot an eight course tasting menu to go necessarily. Although Masa, apparently made a killing on insanely expensive high-end sushi boxes because there are a lot of people whose jobs and livelihoods were not affected at all. And now they just work from home, but their salaries are the same and they just don't have anywhere to spend money. So there are definitely people who still have money to spend, 
but for the restaurant industry in specific, or a lot of restaurants sold off significant percentages of their collections. Almost everyone who tried to make a pivot did some sort of like retail bottle sales situation. We did that at Coat. We put basically the entire wine list online to be purchased to go. Victoria put together like blind tasting kits for people who are like into that sort of thing. We put together wine by the glass and these like little wax sealed bottles for people who wanted something to go with dinner. Like we really invested heavily in these ways of bringing wine to people in their homes and the permission to do that from the city was obviously a big part of it and something that would be really great for the restaurant industry in general in New York if that was able to continue. I don't know what the plans are, but yeah, that like beverage to go, like the bottled cocktails to go, the like at home, like full dinner packages, like adding on bottles of wine and all that stuff. There are people who are able to do that. And then there are a lot of people who just said like, we got to hunger down and wait this out or not. We saw both of those pivots. You know, obviously some people just closed and some people sold off their stock to pay out employees leave time and just to try to get them some compensation. Then we had other people who did the hard pivot to selling to-go bottles or cocktails and things like that. I would imagine that in all those scenarios that there would be a much lower need for people in the trade of some ways to manning that for it. Like you only need so many people manning the, or staffing the shop to do those bottle sales. And I'm curious, like, do you think that there's going to be a substantial drop as restaurants start to spin back up or thinking about the craft of being a sommelier in, in these bigger cities? Do you think that they're going to maybe not need as many and go a little leaner because they're so scared of the pandemic that they just came out of? I am sure that there will be operators who make that decision. I think it's a very bad decision. Or I think that making decisions on how you're going to staff out of fear of what you have just come out of, it's understandable, but I think that it's short-sighted because... If you don't have people in your restaurant who can sell the beverages that make up such a significant percentage of your profitability to your customers and guests, you're going to make less money. It's this idea of like, you have to spend money to make money, which is such a chestnut, but you have to have wines to sell and someone who knows how to sell them in order to bring in more revenue to the restaurant. In the middle of it, That's different, right? If you're to go only and totally shut down and you have no in-restaurant dining and you're just putting out to-go things, then absolutely you only need essentially one person to handle that. And that's why specifically the United Sommeliers Foundation was conceived of. It was something that Chris Blanchard and Christy Norman put together in this third week of March. We just celebrated our one-year anniversary last week. And it was specifically to find ways to financially assist floor sommeliers who were probably not going to have a job again until their restaurants were reopened and no one knew when that was going to be. Mm. Could you tell us a little more about what the United Sommeliers Foundation is and how it works and all the good stuff? We are a charitable organization who exists at present to provide financial relief and assistance to originally floor sommeliers, but we have sort of expanded to the wider like wine and beverage and restaurant industry in general. Although our focus is still floor sommeliers, they are the people who we prioritize most highly when deciding how to allocate funds. We raised money through some auctions. We took 
individual donations from individual people and also wineries and other companies who wanted to help. In the last year, we've raised almost a million dollars and have redistributed the majority of that through over a thousand individual grants. The grants were a minimum of $500 because that is the amount of money that you can gift to someone that they don't have to be accountable to on their taxes the next year. So we didn't want to give people money and then have them have to pay for it later come tax time. And then we also did a level of gifting that we called the Grand Cru Scholarship, where we didn't give money to people because then the tax liability, but we asked them to let us know what were the most onerous financial obligations they had. So we paid like directly to their landlord or directly to their utility company or directly to like the people that they leased their car from or whatever it was for that person. So we were able to give people more assistance in that way by making direct payments to their creditors as opposed to to the salaries themselves. What was the deciding criteria for who gets a credit versus who gets a bill paid for them? Like, how does one differentiate that? It's a very involved system. It involves a massive spreadsheet that's put together by Arden Morgan, who is the sole like actual employee of the United Sommeliers Foundation and is the person who literally makes everything happen. So Arden puts together this spreadsheet. It is totally blind. She retracts any like identifying information about like the name of someone's restaurant where they work or anything like that. So the idea is that we don't know who we're voting on and there's a series of questions in the application and you talk about what you used to do, your current situation, your needs, etc. And there's a pretty objective assessment that we make and we rank all of these different questions on a specific set of scales. And then at the end, you look at the composite score and make a decision. There's two different applications. So most people applied as like the general application, which is the $500 grants. And then if you wanted to also apply for ground crew, that was a separate application with its own criteria. And the United Sommeliers Foundation was born out of the COVID crisis and the impact that we've been talking about on restaurants. Is it meant to be a temporary thing or does it live on longer in some other form or fashion? Our great hope is for it to continue to live on. We're in the middle at the moment of trying to identify what we think our future purpose is going to be. Because obviously, as restaurants open up and cities start to re-engage in the ways that they used to pre-COVID, less and less people will need money because they'll all be able to go back to work. We're in the process of trying to figure out what that looks like. But we think that there are all kinds of different options and directions we can move. And we're trying to identify what that is going to be for ourselves. And with all these changes that have happened through the pandemic, not stealing from our show closing, lasting trend and fizzling fad, what do you think will be permanently changed in the restaurant world and with beverage programs from that? So I think the biggest thing is what I was talking about earlier, and that's everyone needs to wear more hats. Everyone needs to have a very all hands on deck mentality to the work that they do. And I think the thing that I would love to see is more sommeliers become more financially savvy in terms of how their programs actually work. Every restaurant is different and every restaurant operator is willing to give more or less access to 
like the nuts and bolts of how the restaurant operates. But I think the more we are able to contribute in a really sensible way to the financial health of the restaurant, the better off everyone is going to be, right? If you are an operator who just asks your beverage director to count inventory every month and send you the value, you're wasting the opportunity to have someone really fully understand what their responsibility is in the organization and how their programs impact the bottom line. And I think most of us really want to contribute to the health of the restaurant in that way. So I would love to see more operators let their sommeliers and wine directors in on those conversations. USHG was very active in demanding pretty rigorous financial analysis from the wine directors every month at the end of the period. And I learned an enormous amount and it has made me much more effective as I've moved on into other places. So I think more of that should happen. So carrying forward on that, as fine dining starts to open back up and some of and beverage directors start to rebuild their wine list, what do you think will be some things that you'll see that will be maybe slightly different than pre-COVID levels, like as they start to recraft those lists? Do we think that you alluded to some that upper echelon kind of being a smaller percentage, but is there anything else in terms of like selections or thought process around building those lists that you think will be different? I think there's going to be a long period of time where everyone's very anxious about cash flow, which is totally understandable, right? We all are coming out of COVID with significantly more debt than we went into it with for the most part and making sure that you have the funds overall as a restaurant to operate the way that you need to, meaning that you're paying your vendors and payroll checks don't bounce and all of that is super important. And it means, I think, that everyone will need to pay attention to how much money they're spending and what their budget is on a weekly basis, or at least that's how we've been thinking about it. And I'm sure most people are doing the same thing. So you can go one of two directions. You can decide that you're going to try and have as much like breadth and depth as possible in like very tiny, like one and two bottle lots, or you can decide that you're going to like trim the excess, like refocus and build a program that is smaller, but requires less maintenance. And I think it's really going to depend on the individual restaurant and the structure of the team for the beverage director. And are there any like takeaways from doing the to-go bottles in this COVID era that are like learnings around like how to help shape the list in the coming years? I don't know if there's necessarily lessons from the to-go bottles. I will tell you that 100% managing an online inventory and in-restaurant inventory is extremely frustrating and difficult and results in missing out like 86s and other out of stocks on one platform or the other. It's very difficult to not let that happen. So what we have found has worked really well in terms of the to-go list, especially now that we're back up and running inside, is to essentially treat the to-go menu like a conversation with a sommelier. So it's not like, here's all the wines, just pick what you want. For us, it's there's a sommelier selection for $85. You tell us the sorts of things that you like. 
we come up with something specifically for you based off of what you say, something that would hit the list around like $140 to $150. So that like retail value is there and it feels like you're getting your money's worth, but it's specific to you as opposed to making you make those choices. So we do more things like that. So and if you were to look into Mia's mystical crystal ball, how long do you think it will take for the somebody side of the house or the wine part of the house to get back to the pre-pandemic levels? I feel like my magical crystal ball is very foggy, um, but I have been blown away by the way that people are willing to spend right now. Like when we reopened indoor dining in New York. It was on September 30th. People spent money in October like they usually do in December. It was wild. And again, like I, there were a lot of people whose livelihoods were not affected by COVID and they just haven't been able to go anywhere, do anything. Like there's no theater tickets, there's no show tickets, there's no vacations, there's no nothing. So they have all of this income that they haven't been able to spend. And also, like I like to spend money when I have it. It feels very happy for some reason. That says a lot about our society, probably. But I have never seen so many jobs open. Everyone is hiring. Like everyone is trying to hire sommeliers right now. And there are somehow so few people applying for these jobs. It's insane. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen all of the jobs in the world and no people to fill them. Usually it's one or the other. I honestly, especially in like places like New York, I think programs are going to bounce back sooner rather than later because the market is there for the spending. And do you think there's so many jobs, but not enough people because all the sommeliers had to pivot and find another job, whether it's working for wine.com or a PR agency or some other place? I think some of it's that. I think This is particular to New York, and I don't know that most other cities had the same thing. A lot of people left. A lot of like GMs and wine directors in the city of restaurants that did not try to stay open left the city. They moved home. They moved to wherever their partner is from. They took like a fancy corporate job in some other city when the rest of the country was still much more open than New York. And so there are a lot of jobs for people to like grow up into. There's wine director opportunities and GM opportunities that pre-COVID weren't there because people had been in them for a long time and weren't necessarily planning on going anywhere. So it means that there's this like gap in the like floor sum area of things because a lot of people were able to take jobs that they had been aspiring towards but hadn't had the opportunity for. I think that's part of it too. Mia, with every guest, we always ask them for a lasting trend and a fizzling fad. And we'd love for you to talk about a lasting trend and a fizzling fad for the restaurant industry and what you see for the future of sommeliers. So this is probably going to sound like a cop-out because it's going to seem too large. But I think like curiosity and interest and investment with like dollars representing placements on wine lists of parts of Europe and the new world that historically have not been as widely seen, I think that is going to continue. I unfortunately think that 
like what we think of as like the historic great wines of the world, like Bordeaux and Burgundy and Barolo and Napa Cabernet are just going to continue to become more expensive. I don't think those prices are going back down at any time. And so hopefully sommeliers will continue to explore places like the Sierra de Gredos outside of Madrid and Northwestern Spain and parts of Portugal and like interesting, weird varieties from like cool climates in America and Australia and all of these other things. So wines that have some commonality in drinking experience with those wines that have become more and more expensive, but can do it for a price point that someone who's just venturing into wine is going to be comfortable with. Like, I also think Oregon Chardonnay is the greatest wine that is being made in America right now. And I would love for more people to drink more Oregon Chardonnay because that stuff is so good. It drinks so much like white burgundy. Not that that should be the benchmark for Chardonnay, but it is a benchmark for Chardonnay. And that stuff is awesome. And I want everyone to drink more of it. I am 100% with you on Oregon Chardonnay. There's so much, unfortunately, outside of the U.S., people think of American Chardonnay as California Chardonnay and therefore over oaked and buttery, which is not really even the case in California if you look at the right producers. But uh, anyways, uh, Oregon has a ton of, like, forget Pinot, Chardonnay. Gotcha. Okay, so in terms of fizzling fad, what do you think was popular and is fading away? This is going to make some people unhappy, probably, but... It looks like the like super high-end direct-to-consumer mailing lists are starting to fall out of favor. I don't know that it's a fad because it was such a strong trend for so long, but the like people willing to spend the money every year on like a Harlan allocation and a bond allocation and all of that stuff. I feel like the generation that really built that direct-to-consumer model is starting to get to an age where they're either starting to think about how much wine they're actually going to be able to drink within their lifespan and how much they're willing to pay for it since they already have all of this wine that they may or may not feel like they still have time to drink. And the younger generation is less interested in that kind of like status purchase in a lot of ways. I think we'll see a decline in the overall interest in like cult California Cabernets and other wines that have that like sort of exclusivity as prestige attached to them. I swore you said that your lasting trend was consumers keep asking you how well the wine scored on Vivino. <laughs> I will say that I would love for a lasting trend to be general drinkers willingness to talk to a sommelier about what they're interested in and not just looking it up on an app or like depending on what they read in spectator or advocate or whatever it is. I think we've made huge strides in helping to convince people that not all sommeliers are just out to like take your money and make you feel bad about how much you don't know. I think hopefully we have convinced more people that we're just here to help and we just want to make sure that you drink something you think is delicious for the amount of money you want to spend. That would be a trend that I would love to see continue. My last question, because we did talk about the United Summers Foundation. If people want to find out more information, where should they go? And we'll also be putting it in our show notes. So you can go to www.unitedsommeliersfoundation.org. 
That is our website. It has FAQs and all kinds of other information. I would encourage people to visit that site. If you're a sommelier or other restaurant professional who could use some assistance, or if you feel like you're someone who would like to contribute to the cause of taking care of out of work sommeliers and other restaurant professionals, both information for both types of people are on that website. If you just like want to know what we're up to, we are at United Psalms on Instagram. And so you can find us there as well. And they can also follow you on Instagram at Mia Vanderwater, one word on Instagram, right? And you're posting all of your crazy battles of the Psalms and things like that on there. I am posting all of the crazy battles of the Psalms, which is also super fun. That was my COVID hustle outside of the grocery retail. It was grocery sale and entertaining and educational online remote tasting programming. You just wanted to find a reason to wear that hat. That's all. (laughs) I do not wear the hat. The hat was Photoshopped and people constantly like log into the episode. And then at some point, someone will put in the chat that they're really disappointed that I'm not wearing the hat. I don't own the hat. (laughs) Peter and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to talk with us and tell us about, talk about the future of the Summit space in the U.S. from your point of view. Uh, We greatly appreciate that. And we hope that some people go check out the United Summit Foundation and make some donations. Please do. And please, seriously, 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 we've noticed a serious drop off in applications for assistance. We would still like to give away money to people. If you need it, even if you got an award before, please reapply. We would love to give you something to help you through the end of this period because I know that I feel like we're on our way out of the tunnel, but we're not out of the tunnel yet. So please apply. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.